your Bibles and turn to the book of Micah chapter 5. Micah chapter 5. Micah is sort of right in the middle of the minor prophets. Micah chapter 5. The passage for the sermon is also printed in the bulletin for you, and you're welcome to follow along there if you'd like. So during the month of December, we've been doing this small mini-series called Jesus Foretold by the Prophets. You've seen these flyers that are on the table. Perhaps you got one in your mailbox this week that tells us that what we're doing is looking at Jesus, but specifically as he comes foretold in the Old Testament before his birth by the prophets who who informed us of what Jesus would be like, who gave us uh, hints ahead of time as to his character and as to his work. And so two weeks ago we were in the book of Zechariah chapter 9 where Zechariah tells the people to rejoice for their king comes to them riding on a donkey. And today we're in Micah chapter 5. This is also one of perhaps the most well-known of the prophecies of Jesus in the Old Testament. And as I read it, no doubt you will understand why. So as is our custom, I'll ask if you're able, would you please join me in standing for the reading of God's word today? Hear the word of the Lord as it comes to us today from Micah, chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Now muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel whose coming forth is from of old, from ancient days. Therefore he shall give them up until the time when she who is in labor has given birth. Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray together one more time. Father, this is in fact your word which is given to us to make us wise unto salvation. I ask that the same spirit that gave these words to his people through the prophet Micah will today speak these words to our hearts, that we might be encouraged to look to Jesus, that we might set our hopes on him, that we might look away from ourselves and claim Jesus Christ by faith as our own savior, that he will be a king who is great to all the ends of the earth, that all may return to him, and great will be our peace on that day. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Please be seated. I wonder if you've ever had the experience at at Christmas time of, of building up your expectations, of dreaming and hoping and thinking of what is to come on Christmas Day, and you just build up all these anticipations of what Christmas is going to be like this year, and how wonderful things are going to be this year, and then the actual day comes, and perhaps it doesn't live up to your expectations. Perhaps you experience a very violent clash of your expectations with the reality of the way Christmas actually is. I remember Christmas 1994. I was in high school at the time. It was our first Christmas in Colorado. My family had just moved from California to Colorado, and so I had great expectations that year that we might experience a white Christmas. 
We were in Colorado. It snows there. And, and my brother had come home for Christmas. It was his first year in college, and so the family was back together. I was looking forward to that white Christmas. Well, when I woke up on Christmas morning, not only was there no snow, but my brother had some sort of reaction, and his eye was swollen shut. And so instead of gathering merrily around the Christmas tree to open presents, my dad took him to the emergency room, and my mom and I stayed behind, and we just waited and stared at the presents, having to wait till our family was back together. That was a Christmas that, that my expectations of what Christmas morning would be like were just simply not the way it actually turned out. For the, the kids and the young people, those expectations usually have to do with presents, don't they? Per, perhaps you've set your heart on some new gadget this year, a shiny new iPod, perhaps, and you open your presents and instead you get a nice bright yellow Sony Walkman. Kids don't even know what that is. <laughs> Or perhaps you've set your heart on the fanciest new Lego set with 7,000 pieces and all these moving parts and, and you open your gifts and you find instead a lovely hand-knitted sweater. Has a sweater ever not been a disappointment on Christmas morning? Not in my house. But, but perhaps your expectations of what Christmas will be simply clash with the reality of what is. When you're an adult, it's usually not so much about the presence, maybe it's about the experiences. Maybe you build up your hopes and your expectations that, that this Christmas is going to be the time when the family experiences peace. When, when you have that perfect family dinner on Christmas night or maybe it's on Christmas Eve and everyone gets along and the kids behave for that one hour and not only does everyone look good, but you actually get a, a perfect picture with everyone smiling because it doesn't really count unless it's on social media, right? And so you get that picture and you're able to post it and share it and say this, look at our picture-perfect Christmas until it happens and your expectations simply clash with reality and what actually is. Well, it happens with Jesus too, does it not? We read that all over the gospel stories in the Bible that people had certain expectations of what Jesus would be like. They had certain expectations of what the Messiah would do when he finally came. They had certain expectations, and when Jesus actually came and the reality was there, they had this violent clash of their expectations such that many people turned away from Jesus. They no longer followed him because they were, they were broken, they were confused, they didn't understand. He wasn't what they anticipated. And so at Christmas time this year, we're going back to the prophets because the prophets foretold what Jesus would be, who he would be, what he would do. And so we go to Micah chapter 5 to read about Jesus, the foretelling of his birth in Bethlehem, but not only that, but the character of who he would be. So that when we meet the reality of who Jesus is and his work in our life, we're not disappointed. See, sometimes we come to Jesus with false expectations of what he should do for those who follow him. We expect that he will be one kind of God, but the Bible presents him much differently. And so when we read these verses in Micah, it tells us four things about who Jesus is, four things about his character that I want us to dwell on this morning. He is our coming king, and there are four attributes. First, our coming king is gracious. Our coming king is humble. Our coming king is mighty. And the coming king is trustworthy. He's gracious, he's humble, he's mighty, and he's trustworthy. I want us to see these four things in Micah chapter 5 today. Look at verse 1 with me first. The coming king is gracious. In verse 1, it, the text does it not get off to a bit of a rocky start here. 
Perhaps we're, we're beginning to read, anticipating a nice Christmas passage, and he begins with this. Muster your troops, O daughter of troops. Siege is laid against us. With a rod they strike the judge of Israel on the cheek. Micah here begins by warning the people that an invasion of Israel is coming. Very plainly, a siege is laid against us. He's warning them that the king is going to be brutalized by the enemies. They are going to strike him on his cheek. It's a sign of humiliation, a sign of defeat that they strike the king of Israel on the cheek. We think most likely Micah here is talking about the invasion of the Assyrians against Israel around 721 B.C. when Assyria marched in on Jerusalem and took over the northern kingdom of Israel. And he's warning them that this is coming. He's warning the people. And so we have to see this in verse 1 before we get to verse 2. We have to see the, the, the way this chapter unfolds in the big picture. First, we have to start with this bad news of a coming invasion. Before we get to verse 2, the good news that God is sending a new king to rule over Israel. We see this principle at work here that, that we know so well that we don't really appreciate good news until we have first felt the weight of the bad news. Isn't that true of all of life? We don't really appreciate how good the good news is unless we've really felt the weight of the bad news. We've really felt the weight of the dilemma that the good news solves for us. Israel wouldn't really appreciate how good it is that God is sending a new king to rule over Israel until they've felt the weight of the dilemma that faces them, until they know the bad news that Assyria is coming against them. And so we see this warning here in Micah. But you know what? The reality is even more stark. Because we read Micah and we see the good news is actually even better than it might seem. But the bad news is also even worse than it might seem. The bad news in Micah is actually far worse. When you read the book of Micah, you know what the real problem that faces the nation of Israel is? It's not Assyria. It's Israel. Israel's biggest problem that they face in this day is, is Israel itself. Micah spends the majority of this book very lovingly, but very firmly, pointing out to Israel all of her sins. Calling her to account, calling her to repent for what she has done, for the way the people have acted against one another and against their God. He's pointing out throughout the book the ways they are sinning against the Lord, and he does it very specifically. He points out very specific sins. He tells them that they have not loved justice. They have, not, uh, they have exploited the poor. They have not stood up for the poor. They covet others' property, and they steal it. The judges in Israel accept bribes. The priests only teach those who can pay. The prophets are selling the word of God for money. And then, after all of these things, they go to the temple, they offer a sacrifice, and they think all is well. God is pleased with them because they've been to the temple. And Micah here brings conviction of sin to them. He comes and he points out these sins, and he says, The Lord is not pleased with this. And your sacrifices don't, don't wipe away everything else that is done. The Lord is not pleased. And there's a reality in that for us today. That the biggest problems that each one of us faces, the biggest problems and issues in our life are not our circumstances. It's not all the things around us. It's not the other people that we have to get along with. The biggest problem each one of us faces is ourselves. It's our own sin that is our dilemma. What we most need deliverance from is not simply our circumstances. 
It's not simply a trial that we are currently undergoing. It's not simply difficulties that have arisen in our life. No matter how pressing those might be and how difficult they are, that's not the main problem we have. Our biggest problem, the Bible will say, is ourselves. It's our own sin against the Lord. That is what we need deliverance from. It's so easy, isn't it, for us to see other people's sins? Most of us have 20-20 vision in spotting and pointing out other people's sins. We are usually blind with respect to our own. It's easy to criticize the culture around us and to say, look at them, look at what they do, look at their problems, how evil they are, and yet so difficult for us to see ourselves. And Micah does not let us get away with that. Micah does not let us get away with that. He points the finger back at us and he says, it is our sin that is the problem. He makes known to us the places we fall short. And so when we get to chapter 5, we read about the Assyrian invasion, this coming uh, siege that is laid against them. And that's really not the main problem. That's the result. Because the people have not loved God as they ought, because they have not obeyed the Lord as they ought, God has now raised up the nation of Assyria to come against Israel as his instrument of justice. He is meeting out his own perfect righteous, fair justice for his people by bringing Assyria against them. That's not the problem they need deliverance from. That's the, the result of the problem they need deliverance from. You see, that's the big context of this prophecy. That's the big context as God is calling the people to account for their specific sins. And in his fairness, in his justice, and his righteousness, he will bring punishment and he will destroy them. Then we get to verse 2. Then we get to the good news that, you know what, the problem is ourselves, that we have sinned against God, and yet now God says, but I will send for you a deliverer. God says, I am going to give you a new king who will rule over you in justice, in fairness, and in righteousness. He will shepherd you in the might and the majesty of the Lord, and he will save his people. The good news is God, is God is the one who is offended by our sins, and he says, now, I will send a new king for you. He is going to send a savior to shepherd, to care for the people, to lead them, to protect them, to make them secure, to make them at peace. You see, here we see the goodness and the grace of God revealed in this prophecy. When he looks at you, you see, it's easy for us to start in verse 1 with our circumstances and to think, Lord, this is my problem, is that I have these trials, and so my expectation is deliverance from a specific trial. But instead, we need to see the larger context and the reality that, that really what I need deliverance from is my sin. It's me, it's my sin nature, that I am born by nature sinful. And so when God looks at you, he doesn't just see a helpless person who could kind of use a hand getting up. He sees a sinful person who is guilty before God. And yet, even in seeing that, he now provides a redeemer. Even in seeing you as you are, he provides a savior for you. See, that's why we so often have this clash of our expectations with Jesus, because we don't see the real nature of our problem. And when we don't understand our problem, we don't know what we need deliverance for or from, then our expectations of what Jesus, our Savior, can do for us will be all wrong. We'll expect him to simply be a God who helps us through difficult circumstances, who is there for us, who has our back, who makes our lives better in certain unspecific ways. And yet, what we really need is a, a God who will be a Savior for us, 
who will save us from our sin. We must see and identify properly our problem to understand and appreciate his grace towards us. And the first thing we read is that this coming king is very gracious. Secondly, the coming king is also seen as humble. He's humble. This is what we see in verse 2. But you, O Bethlehem Ephrathah, who are too little to be among the clans of Judah, from you shall come forth for me one who is to be ruler in Israel. This, I mean, this is the verse we know, right? This is the most specific prophecy that's included in these verses. That this one who is coming, who will be the Messiah, will be born in Bethlehem. And we saw last week when Lee was preaching from Matthew chapter 2 how important this prophecy had become. For the people who lived in Jesus' day, they knew this and they knew that one who would claim to be the Messiah must be from Bethlehem. And that if you claimed to be the Messiah, but you weren't from Bethlehem, your claim was false. It, it was easily refutable because they knew the prophecy of verse 2. And, and this is why. Because Micah tells us that the king comes from Bethlehem. But why else is this so important? And why is it so important enough that, that God, supernaturally, by the power of his Holy Spirit, would inspire one of his prophets to foretell to all the people the location of the Messiah's birth? Why the location? I mean, he doesn't tell us you know, the names of his parents. He doesn't tell us what color eyes he's going to have or what color hair he's going to be born with. But he tells us this, the spot, the location, the city that he comes from. And here's the reason. Because knowing he comes from Bethlehem gives us a view of his character. It tells us something about the character of this king. That he's a humble king. That he's not like kings that we would expect. Because nobody expects a king to come from Bethlehem. Everyone knows that important people who do important things live in important places. Right? And they would expect that a king who would rule over Israel would come from Jerusalem. That's where kings should be born. The capital city, it's like we in our day, we know that if you're going to be an important person, you go to an important school. Maybe an Ivy League school, maybe Point Loma in San Diego. You go to important places like that. And we know that after graduation, you move to L.A. or San Francisco or New York because these are the world cities of influence. This is where things get done. And so we know important people are in important places, and yet here it is, that Jesus is born in Bethlehem. He's born in Bethlehem. The verse even tells us, Bethlehem's too small. It's too small to be counted among the clans of Judah. There's a list, if you read Joshua chapter 15, it lists 100 significant cities in the Promised Land. It's the, the Forbes most desirable 100 places to live, and Bethlehem is not on the list. It's not important. It's not a significant place, and yet that's where Jesus is born. We know this well because our song of reflection today is a well-known Christmas carol that we love to sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem. And the story of this hymn is interesting. It was written by Phillips Brooks. You can see down there at the bottom, Phillips Brooks was a, a very well-respected, uh, very well-loved Anglican minister in the 19th century. He lived in Philadelphia for a time. He was the rector at Holy Trinity Church in Philadelphia before moving to Boston. Uh, he was a very influential man. He cared much about social issues. He, he preached in 1865 the funeral for Abraham Lincoln. 
And later that same year, in 1865, he was on sabbatical and he took a trip to travel throughout the Middle East. He found himself Christmas Eve, 1865, in Jerusalem. And he rented a horse to travel the seven or eight miles outside Jerusalem through the hills to Bethlehem. Which had to be a pretty heady experience for a minister to be riding a horse on Christmas Eve toward Bethlehem, reenacting in so many ways the, the very scenario that Joseph and Mary would have been traveling to Bethlehem that same night so long ago. Well, it was, it was three years after that. We see the date there at the bottom. is 1868. It was a few years later, reflecting on that experience, that he wrote the words to this hymn. And what we see when we sing it is this, that he reflects on this strange combination of this little town of no significance, of no importance, together with the God of all the universe, God's incarnate plan from all eternity coming together, a town of, of no import, and the God of all the universe coming together at Bethlehem that one night. And, and we reflect on just how unexpected that is, that God would choose Bethlehem that he would tell us this 700 years in advance when it was all being planned out where he could send Jesus anywhere he wanted, that he would choose Bethlehem. And yet, isn't that just like Jesus? Isn't that just like Jesus, that he's always subverting our expectations of who he should be? Isn't he always subverting who we expect him to be and what we expect that he will do, the kind of savior that he will be? Don't we expect that, that the coming king would be a conquering hero? And instead, he comes as a humble servant. Don't we expect that he would come with a sword and instead he comes with a cross? Don't we expect that he would arrive to great acclaim and instead he's born in Bethlehem? And it's not just this one isolated incident, but this is, this is who Jesus is. This is the very character of our God that we see it throughout the scriptures. Isaiah 66 says very poignantly, the Lord says, Heaven is my throne, earth is my footstool. What is the house you will build for me? And then he says, This is the one to whom I will look. He who is humble and contrite in spirit and trembles at my word. We read of it in the story of Hannah in 1 Samuel chapters 1 and 2 when Hannah finally sings her great hymn saying, The Lord raises up the needy from the dust heap and he makes them sit with princes. That the Lord is always one who cares for the small, the downtrodden, we read it again in, in 1 Corinthians chapter 1 when Paul says in verses 22 and 23, he says, listen to the, what we hear, this clash of expectations and reality. 1 Corinthians 1, 22 says, Jews demand signs and Greeks seek wisdom, but we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block. See, there was that clash of their expectations that, that some expected him to come with wisdom. Others expected him to come with signs. They had great expectations of who Jesus would be and what he would do. The Messiah should be this kind of person. And he said, we preach Christ crucified, which is a stumbling block and a clash of reality with our expectations because isn't that who Jesus always is? That he clashes with our expectations. You see, part of the beauty of Jesus is his humility his lowliness. He comes to us where we are. See, this is good news for us. Right? That, it, that, that God would send his son to be incarnate, not in palaces only, not only in the finest places, but in the ordinary places. 
with people like us. Look at verse 4 of the hymn we're going to sing, O Little Town of Bethlehem. It says, O O holy child of Bethlehem, descend to us, we pray. Cast out our sin and enter in, be born in us today. We hear the Christmas angels, the great glad tidings tell. O come to us, abide with us, our Lord Emmanuel. See, here's the prayer of Christmas that not only would Jesus come and be born in Bethlehem, incarnate in that manger, but that he would dwell with us. And this is our great hope that if Jesus is of this kind of character, that he does not mind being born in Bethlehem. He will most certainly not mind dwelling with us as well. Because, because we look at ourselves and we recognize that we have nothing to offer him. We are not grand people. We're not, we're not those who dwell in palaces. We're not with those with the rich. But, but Jesus delights to dwell with those who are humble, contrite in spirit, and who tremble at his word. So even in this very first act of Jesus' life, simply being born in Bethlehem, we get this little hint already of the character of Jesus' work. We get this little picture of the gospel, that he comes where we are. He comes to us and to take on himself our sin and shame. That, that we would be the ones who would deserve to be born in this lowly cattle stall, to be placed in a manger of no account, and yet Jesus comes and he does that. He takes our shame in order that through faith in him we might know his glory. So our coming king is described in Micah as one who is humble enough to be born in Bethlehem, and that's good news for us. So he is gracious, he's humble. Third, the coming king is also mighty. He's humble, but he's mighty. Now, if we ask why he's born in Bethlehem, and we say, okay, the first reason is it, does, it demonstrates that Jesus is humble, that he's perfectly content to dwell with the lowly, but there's a second association as well. There's a second reason he's born in Bethlehem. If you know your Old Testament, you know that Jesus is not the first king of Israel who was born in Bethlehem. King David was born in Bethlehem. And we might not catch on to that right away, but I guarantee that those who are listening to Micah preach, they knew that, and that was their very first thought. We see how Micah describes him, that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. He is going to be a ruler in Israel. And then we see in verse 4 that he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord. Anyone in the Old Testament who's talking about a, a ruler who will come, who will be born in Bethlehem, and who is a shepherd of the flock of the Lord, they know immediately that he's saying this, David is coming, a newer David, a greater David, an even better king is coming from the line of David who will rule over Israel again. And this is the source of all their hopes. Can you imagine how their hearts must have leapt in their chest upon hearing that? That here Micah has already denounced to the kings of Israel. He's already said that these are ones who accept bribes who are unrighteous, who do not look out for the poor and the downtrodden. They are selective in their justice. And that's part of the problem in Israel those days, that they live under an unjust regime. And now Micah comes and he says, that's why the wrath of the Lord is on you, but a new David is coming. A new David, a new king who will rule from the throne of David, who will shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord and in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. He will be a new David. You see, David was a shepherd, and now he tells his people that this one who's coming, Jesus, he's a shepherd as well. 
He's going to shepherd his people. We know from John chapter 10, Jesus is a shepherd. He's the good shepherd, in fact, that he feeds his people so that no one goes hungry under his reign. We know that he's a shepherd who gathers his people so that we can be confident that none will ever be lost. We know that he's a shepherd who speaks to his people. It says in John 10 that he speaks to his, his sheep. They know his voice. There's that familiarity of the shepherd and the sheep together that he speaks to them and they hear his voice and they follow him because they know him. This is why we read Psalm 23 at the beginning to say the Lord, he is our shepherd. All the goodness he is to us as our king and our shepherd, this coming king will be like that. We also remember that David was king over the United Kingdom. We remember David ruled over all Israel together. And, and after his death and Solomon's death, the kingdom was split into two kingdoms, the southern kingdom and the northern kingdom. And so to say it's a new David means they will have a united kingdom again. Just like it says in verse 3 about Jesus. The very end of the verse says, Then the rest of his brothers shall return to the people of Israel. He's going to bring them back. Those who are scattered will come back. Those who go into exile will return. Jesus will be the king who gathers all of his people together. David expanded the borders of Israel. It says of Jesus in verse 4 that he shall be great to the ends of the earth. So he will do even more than David has done. David put down the enemies of Israel. So Jesus shall defend his people. I think one of the most memorable lines we sing in, our, in this hymn, O Little Town of Bethlehem, is the last line of the first verse. Where we sing this, The hopes and fears of all the years are met in thee tonight. Can we just imagine what it was like to, to live during the time of Micah, 700 years before Christ, and to hear him say this, and, and to imagine these hopes that spring up in your heart upon hearing this announcement, this prophecy, that here you are living in these unjust times, when you look around and you see all the brokenness that exists in the world, you see all the sin, all the tension, all the unrighteousness, and, and for those who were the faithful in Micah's day, they mourned because of that. They mourned because the people went astray from the Lord. They were led by unrighteous leadership. They had no godly kings. All of the hopes that were built up, and then Micah says to them, One is coming who will be born in Bethlehem, who will be a ruler in Israel, whose coming forth is from old, from ancient days. He's going to shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God, and they shall dwell secure. For now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. All the hopes that are, that are built up in that and that are all stored together. See, when, when we think about hopes and fears, those are opposites, right? Hopes is what we really hope will happen, although it hasn't happened yet. And our fears are really what we really hope won't happen, even if it hasn't happened yet. He says these two things, they, they come together in Christ. They are met in thee tonight that Jesus is the fulfillment of all of our hopes throughout all the years. See, we can relate because we're still in that same position, aren't we? Although Jesus has begun his work, we look around and we say, we still live in a broken society. We still mourn all the brokenness and the tragedy that's all around us that happens every day. We still mourn for all the sin that is in us and all around us. We sin against others and we are sinned against and we know the pain. And so we still have that hope that on that great day when Jesus is all in all. And he will be great to the ends of the earth. And he will be our peace. He will be our perfect 
shepherd king. See, everything comes together in Jesus, born in Bethlehem. So our king, he's gracious, he's humble, he's mighty, and lastly, he's trustworthy as well. He's trustworthy. I want us to to look for a moment at the end of verse 4 and the beginning of verse 5. The end of verse 4 says this amazing line. It says, They shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And he shall be their peace. Think about that line at the end of verse 4. They shall dwell secure, for he shall be great to the ends of the earth. They shall dwell secure, because he shall be great to the ends of the earth. See, that makes complete sense when we recognize he's just pictured Jesus as a shepherd. Think of the sheep. Sheep are always most secure, most at peace, most safe when their shepherd is great, when he's fully alert and he's fully armed, he's fully strong and fully capable of defending those sheep against any coming intruders. The greatness of the shepherd is the security of the sheep. They rest at ease knowing they don't have to protect themselves, it's their shepherd who cares for them. They are secure because he is great. But don't we often think about that backwards? Don't we often get it wrong? Don't we often think that in order for us to dwell secure, what, what we need is to build ourselves up? We need to establish ourselves. We need to establish an identity for ourselves. We need to establish some safety nets for ourselves. We need to make sure that we are prominent, that we have some money in the bank to fall back on. We, we need to build ourselves up in order to feel secure that we are not able to fall. That's what we do. Aren't we always tempted to, to feel secure based on our own accomplishments? Aren't we tempted to make a name for ourselves by what we have done? By who we are? And, and isn't that a, a vain quest? That's, isn't that a labor that's never ever finished? To try to establish yourself, to try to make yourself great enough that you finally feel secure? It's a completely vain, unending labor until you find the gospel. Until you come to Christ. And and he says, they will dwell secure for then he shall be great to the ends of the earth. And and the greater that Christ is, and the greater that he is in your own mind, the more you see his glory and the more you see his majesty, the more you understand the character of his reign, it says the more we dwell secure. The more we are at peace, the greater he is. When we find ourselves in the greatness of Christ, dwelling with him, then he says, you shall be secure. That is where we find our security and our peace, but, but so often we, just, we don't like being cast in that role as sheep. Right? We, we want to take the role of the shepherd and to, to build ourselves up. And Micah says, no, find yourselves first in Christ in order to find security. And in verse 5 it says, And he shall be their peace. He, that is Jesus Christ, shall be their peace. Isn't this the biggest longing and hope and expectation that we all have at Christmas time? Isn't this what sort of deep within you it seems like Christmas should all be about? That it's about finding peace. Not just shallow peace as sort of an a absence of conflict, but the deep biblical shalom that time and that sense that everything shall be right again, that everything that's gone wrong will be put back in place, everything that is broken will be fixed, that we will truly know peace. 
That's what we long for in all its fullness, to know the peace in this world. And, and yet so often at Christmas time, where do we look for it? We, we look for it in family. We look for it in experiences. We look for it in presents that are wrapped under the tree. We look for it in this elusive Christmas spirit, whatever that is. And those will all let us down. Those will all be these expectations that are built up so high and then clash violently with reality. But he says to us here that Jesus is our peace. And so this is what I want from you this Christmas. I want from you to to when you find yourself with your expectations running into the brick wall of reality and feeling that sense of disappointment that the world has let you down, once again, I want you to, to speak to your own heart and to point yourself back to Christ. To find yourself in his greatness. For, for we shall dwell secure when he is great to the ends of the earth. To speak to your heart that Jesus alone is the source of true, lasting peace. That he is a king who shall reign in our lives. He will shepherd the flock in the strength of the Lord. In the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And I want you to, to very intentionally point your heart back towards Christ at Christmas. And to rest only in him to set up no other expectations of, of who other people should be for you and what they should do to fulfill you this Christmas, but to look only to Christ, to set him apart as great and to rest in him this Christmas. Can we do that? Let's pray. Father, we ask that you will, this Christmas, point our hearts to Christ. We ask that you will, by your Spirit, be at work in our lives, Father, speak truth to us that we may not place our hopes on the false pretenses and promises of this world, that we will not look for fulfillment in things that will let us down. But Father, may we rest in Jesus, our Savior. May we rest under the banner of his greatness. May he feed us as a shepherd and care for us and protect us. May he lead us beside still waters, causing us to lie down in green pastures. We pray that you will do that to revive your church, to encourage us, to build us up, and to glorify the name of Jesus. In whose name we pray, amen.